A man named Arthur Knight walked into a Scottish hospital. He was sick, really sick with COVID. He fell into a coma. When he woke, he realized he'd been fingerprinted and claimed to have been tattooed. The tattoos ran up and down his arms, and strangely, the fingerprints didn't match the name he signed in with. He was told they match a fugitive from the United States. That isn't right, he wheezed through his oxygen mask. My wife will tell you, I'm Irish, not American. There must be some mistake. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Before we start, if you'd like to see pictures to go with this case, please check out Twisted Travel and True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'll post these on Patreon as well for those of you who have subscribed. There are links in the show description to all social media and links to take you places where you can help support the show if you'd like to do so. Another important note is that if you are a new listener, I'd like you to go ahead and listen to the early episodes if you'd like to listen to them. I am going to be taking them down because the sound quality of the podcast has improved quite a bit since the early days. I plan to either remaster them or put them on Patreon for subscribers. Okay, enough chit-chat. Let's get this episode rolling. Nicholas Alaverdian was born in 1987 in Rhode Island. He was the oldest of three children. His father wasn't a very nice guy. He had convictions for domestic assault and selling cocaine. He left his wife and kids three years after Nicholas was born. His mother, Diane, supported the family by waitressing. In 1994, she married a man named David Rossi. They met at the restaurant when she was waitressing, and he was entertaining the crowd, working as an Engelbert Humperdinck impersonator. David would adopt Diana's three children, which was also part of the deal he made with Diana when she agreed to marry him. Nicholas Aliverde became Nicholas Rossi. At seven years old, he was described by his stepfather as violent with mental and behavioral issues. His stepfather said he wouldn't listen in school. He hit his mother and hit his grandmother all the time. He'd hit his siblings. I used to have to hold him down, and he'd be spitting at me. They tried counseling. They even admitted him to hospitals for care, but nothing seemed to work. He was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder and attention deficit disorder. His parents would separate after five years. His mom, a heavy drug user, couldn't manage her three boys. They were placed in the custody of the Rhode Island Department of Children, Youth, and Families. By the time Nicholas was 12 years old, he was living in a boys' home in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. There simply weren't enough foster families to take him in. He'd be dropped off with a half-dozen other boys at the state office each morning, and he'd have to stay there for the day before finding out each evening where he'd be staying for the night. They had old magazines to read and odd jobs to do for the state workers during the day. This went on for over a year. He wasn't alone. There were half a dozen boys who went through the same thing. But the only other constant was the ebb and flow of state representatives, who Nicholas began to emulate. Nick may have been violent, but he was also smart. Over the next couple of years, he pursued his ambition to enter the world of politics and began by working as a page at the State House in Providence. He'd run errands for lawmakers and listen in during sessions. Soon he made friends with local politicians who remembered him as courteous and helpful. He was well-dressed at 15 years old, a clean-cut boy who loved politics and the State House. As the representatives got to know him better, 
He'd open up to them, telling them that he'd been abused while in the state's custody. He hoped to work with lawmakers to reform the child welfare system. Specifically, Nicholas claimed that for 15 months, beginning in March 2002, he was denied school. Instead, he was moved from place to place and faced nightmare after nightmare. Other youth stole his belongings, threatening and sexually assaulting him. It wasn't just the other kids in the program who were abusing him. Sometimes it was the leaders. He wanted to go to school. He wanted to listen to classical music and feel safe and cared for. A Rhode Island representative named Brian Coogan even considered adopting Nicholas at the time. He said he felt sorry for the teenager and took action to formally adopt him, but he was warned off from doing so by one of the judges that had some experience with Nicholas. This judge warned the representative that Nicholas will try to undermine you and turn your family upside down. He could be a handful, but he was also determined and relentless. He'd be in the ear of anyone he wanted to influence, and he'd slowly wear them down. He formed an organization called Nexus Government to lobby for child welfare in 2002 at the age of 15, but the organization had crumbled by 2003. This was likely because Nicholas was sent out of state to Boys Town in Nebraska, and then shortly afterwards to Manatee Palms Youth Services in Florida. Nicholas was not happy about this. He felt that they were just moving him around because he was advocating for welfare reform in Rhode Island, and the administration didn't like what he was saying about them. He would later file a lawsuit against Rhode Island. In it, he would testify that he was prohibited from contacting people people like the media, attorneys, and even his former caseworker during this time. He claimed he was beaten daily in Florida, Nebraska, and Rhode Island by other youths in the programs, and he was neglected under their care until 2005. The year Nicholas was returned to Rhode Island, he was placed in an independent living program. At 18, he was no longer a ward of the state. Once on his own, he studied comparative literature in an extension program offered by Harvard University. He didn't graduate, but going forward he would claim to be a Harvard scholar, a political scientist, and a sociologist. Over the next few years, he would initiate a federal lawsuit against the Department of Children, Youth, and Family in the states of Florida and Nebraska. He would sue six residential facilities and 18 individuals for alleged abuse committed against him. In August 2013, the lawsuit was settled. The Department of Children, Youth, and Families denied any liability or culpability regarding the allegations. However, they waived more than $200,000 of medical expenses that were incurred while Nicholas was in the state foster care system. It's my understanding that the state has to try to collect payment for medical care if someone under the state sues them. So really, no one won anything in this battle, except the lawyers. For most of his 20s, Nicholas spent time suing the states and fighting for welfare reform. His supporters were deeply saddened when the young, ambitious political wannabe announced in 2019 that he was dying. He had non-Hodgkin lymphoma. This is a cancer that forms in the lymphatic system. It's treatable. But after Nicholas reported to several media organizations that he was sick, his widow would call and report that he succumbed to his disease on February 29, 2020. Several media organizations reported on his death. His obituary stated that he died two months after going public with his diagnosis. 
His symptoms had included heart disease and multiple heart attacks. He was only 32 years old. At his bedside were his wife, their two children, and extended family. His last words were, Fear not, and run toward the bliss of the sun. The obituary went on, stating that Nick was a devout Roman Catholic, and keeping with his wishes, his earthly remains were cremated, and his ashes were scattered at sea. Statesmen and stateswomen in the House of Representatives and Senate joined with mayors across Rhode Island to pay homage to a man who was acknowledged as one of the most vocal, outspoken, and constructive advocates for reforming Rhode Island, DCYF, and the child care system. The obituary went on and on, praising Nicholas's time spent in politics, his oration skills, his musical skills, and more. It outlined his accomplishments, including his time at Harvard University, stating that it was the most peaceful and intellectually invigorating four years of his life, aside from the past four years with his young, loving family, including his beloved wife and cherished children. The obituary included a long list of his friends from politics, musicians, businesses, and more. Many people publicly mourned his loss and paid tribute to the man he was and what he had done for the community. But others questioned the validity of his death. These people knew the less public side of Nicholas, the seedier side of the man with the brilliant mind, the more dangerous and imposing creep he actually was. Publicly, he was the protector of children and fighter against abuse, but privately, he was the abuser. He had a long trail of alleged victims behind him. Most of them were women he allegedly conned, stole money from, and physically and sexually assaulted. By the age of 18, he was already a rapist, according to a woman who will remain nameless for the time being. I don't intend to release any of the women's names. This woman met Nicholas when she was a sophomore in college in Massachusetts. She was just a few weeks shy of her 19th birthday. The two were both from Providence, Rhode Island, and were the same age. They began by corresponding online. The woman said everything seemed so perfect. He was super gentlemanly and well-spoken and super kind and everything like that. He was fun to talk to. Now I know everything he did was incredibly scripted and out of a playbook. Once he accidentally forwarded her an email that happened to be a copy of his apparent acceptance letter to Harvard University. Looking back, she believes the letter was a fake, designed to impress her. It must have worked because they arranged to meet in person. Nicholas took the train, and she met him at the train station. He greeted her with the most forceful kiss she'd ever experienced. She didn't know this man at all, really, and she felt that he came on much too strong. They went out for dinner at a restaurant before heading back to her dorm to watch the movie Garden State. There, things took a turn for the worse. He kept pressuring her for sex, saying things like, Oh, I spent so long on the train. He was guilting her, and she was trying to play it off. She said, no. I refused. I was like, I don't want to do this. And he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't let it go. I got to the point where I was sick of hearing it from him. And then I specifically remember he threatened me. He said something like, you're going to regret it if you don't. Then he climbed on top of her and raped her. She said she felt her brain go to a different place because she was unable to process the trauma and the fear. The rest of the night was a blur. The next morning, she hurried him out of the dorm, desperate to get rid of him. She had agreed to drop him off in Providence on her way home to visit family. On the way, they stopped at a Dunkin' Donuts drive through She remembered thinking how crazy it was that she was buying her rapist breakfast, 
but she just wanted him gone without any hassle. In the days after the rape, she felt like a zombie, living in a haze. When she finally got back to her dorm room, she threw out everything he had touched, the pillows, the bedding, the cup he drank from, and even the movie they watched. She didn't want any emotional reminders of him. She didn't report the attack to the police, because she was sure they would say that since she had invited him back to her room, she had asked for it. She was angry, though. She reached out to him through Facebook Messenger and said, You raped me. It's not okay. And then she blocked him. A few weeks later, she ran into him. They locked eyes, and he had the audacity to say, You're not even going to say hi to me? She ran in the opposite direction, found a bathroom, and then threw up because she was so upset. It was tearing her up inside. Her friends began to worry about her well-being. Eventually, she told them what happened, and they encouraged her to go to the school counselor. She did, and that was the beginning of five years of therapy for her. Her story was one of many. Another woman had been messaging with Nicholas through an app for days, but had only been in the physical presence of him for about an hour. That was all the time it took for an introductory lunch and to accept his invitation to escort her to her next college class before he sexually attacked her. According to the Providence Journal, they entered a basement stairwell at Sinclair Community College in Dayton, Ohio, when Nicholas pinned her against the wall. He began groping her and masturbating. She told him to get off her. He pressed her harder up against the wall and didn't stop. He replied with, I'm almost done, don't be a bitch, then ejaculated on the wall. This was in January 2008. When he was done, he released her. She was stunned as she walked into her internet technology class, forced to act as if nothing happened, while inside her emotions were in turmoil. Imagine her horror when, after class, Nick was still there waiting in the stairwell. He apologized to her and told her he couldn't help it, that she was just so beautiful, and then he told her not to tell anyone. She went to the police. She took them to where the assault happened, and the police were able to collect his DNA. When questioned he would admit to the police that there had been sexual contact, but claimed that she was the aggressor. They would go to court, but at this point, it was her word versus his. The victim blaming at the trial was very hard for her, because Nick's defense counsel pretty much said that she deserved it. The court ultimately sided with the woman. In March 2008, he was found guilty of public indecency and sexual imposition, which essentially means groping. He was required to register as a sex offender, and his fingerprints and DNA were added to the National Database of Sex Offenders. This woman's actions and the hardships she went through in trial would prove extremely valuable in the future. The trial and outcome didn't seem to deter Nicholas in the least. He just became slimier and more manipulative. According to an article in the Daily Beast, in November 2008, Nicholas was in Utah, trolling the Internet to meet women. This was only seven months after he was officially registered as a sex offender. He met a 26-year-old woman online, and they dated for two months. This woman told investigators that Nicholas was nice. He seemed smart. He was university-educated and interesting, but he was also manipulative. He had no money, and he'd convinced her to lend him some. He never paid her back. He told her he wanted to marry her but then he locked her in a bedroom, forced himself on top of her, and raped her. Around that same time, he also raped a former girlfriend. 
he'd lured her back to his apartment with the promise of repaying some money he had owed her. After the rape, he told her that she was mentally unstable and too emotional to deal with. He then attempted to prevent her from leaving, and she had to sneak away when he was distracted. That's four accusations of rape in the period of one year, 2008, and they all followed the same pattern. In 2009, he was lying to politicians about how great a guy he was and attending fundraisers and galas claiming to be an advocate for children in the foster care system. By 2011, he was claiming he'd been raped and abused while in state custody as a minor. While he was championing vulnerable children in public, he continued to abuse women in private. Between 2010 and 2011, four different women filed complaints against him. In July 2010, he met a woman on a dating site before demanding sex repeatedly at his house, which she refused. He got angry and forced her to go to an ATM and withdraw $400 before making her sign a document saying she would not take legal action. He videoed her while signing the document, which stated that the money was for therapy for him due to her violent actions and sex addiction. In another incident, he was alleged to have kidnapped a woman he met through a Craigslist website. He brought her to his home, and then he took her cell phone and stopped her from leaving when she quickly became uncomfortable. He'd been telling her, Come sit on my lap. Just kiss me. Touch your ear to my ear. And then he threatened to end his life by stabbing himself in the chest if she told anyone. He only let her go when she began screaming at the top of her lungs. Around this time, he lied to police, telling them that he'd had a surgical operation and he couldn't be a rapist as he struggled to perform sexually. He said, I'm scared of sex, okay? I'm not the type of person to violently violate somebody else's personal space. I'm really kind of sensitive about my body because, you know, when I was a baby, I had testicular cancer and they had to remove one of my testicles. So, you know, I'm not exactly trying to have sex with as many people as I can. Twisted Travelers I love to shop, but I'm not buying his bullshit. Also, since when does having one testicle prevent a man from having sex? In yet another instance, a woman claimed that Nicholas threw her to the floor and beat her after he became incensed that her son wouldn't stop crying. He pressed her face into the floor and slapped her. What makes this incident worse is this woman was Nicholas's first wife, who he'd only married a week earlier. A friend of this woman told police that he heard her screaming for help. He called the police. When they arrived, they heard her screaming too. They knocked on the apartment door, and when she opened it, she had visible marks around her left eye, neck, and arms. Her right eye was swollen. The officers heard Nicholas begging her for forgiveness. He was arrested, but refused to cooperate. The officers carried him down the stairs to their car. Once inside, he began hitting his head against the bars of the police car. The police ended up having to pepper spray him in the face. He pled no contest to a simple domestic assault. The marriage ended soon after, and his ex-wife had to put a restraining order on him, which he repeatedly broke. By 2012, he was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and taking those classes at Harvard Extension. It was not the esteemed university itself, but an adult education college where anyone could take classes. He would eventually be kicked out when the college found out about his sexual convictions. Nicholas had refused to accept his conviction for the rape against the woman in the basement of her school. 
He had appealed the conviction many times, and in 2012 he tried once again to get a new trial based on what he described as newly discovered evidence. That evidence was a printed picture of a MySpace post, apparently authored by the woman, in which she seemed to recant her story. A forensic computer expert dismissed the documents as fake. The day of the week and the date printed out didn't match the real day and date. No computer program would have made that mistake. In reality, the MySpace page didn't exist. His anger and resentment against this particular woman grew. He became active online with men's rights forums and blogs. His version of this story was blown up, becoming an example of so-called legal bias and injustice against men. He became the leader of what is often called an incel group. An incel is a member of an online community of men who consider themselves unable to attract women sexually. They are typically associated with views that are hostile towards women and men who are sexually active. The initials incel stand for involuntarily celibate. In 2013, he would sue the woman from the stairwell for defamation, accusing her of subjecting him to five years of unjust legal terror. This case was ultimately dismissed in 2014. Later that year, he wrote a ridiculous piece titled My Personal 911, where he wrote about this woman. He said, her acts are tantamount to flying planes into my twin pillars of personal success and public service. My goals and aspirations crumbled to the earth, amassing a huge heap of rubble. Of course, he didn't mention the rapes he'd been accused of in this garbage fire of an article. Nick's victims weren't just women. When he was 18, he was taken in by a loving family. How did he return their care and selflessness? Well, he took out 22 credit cards in their names and amassed a $200,000 debt. The financial scams would continue, but moving forward they were primarily with women, including a woman he met at a Mormon's single event. Do you remember in his obituary where he stated he was a devout Catholic? He was always ready for a lie in order to move his personal agenda forward. He would date this woman before quickly getting married for the second time. He became violent the day after they were married. He hit her that day, and then it got worse and worse. He put boundaries on what she could do and how she could dress. He separated her from her friends and family. In their basement, this woman found Nicholas had handwritten journals, which listed details of women he'd been watching. The diaries included details of the women's college schedules, like their likes and dislikes. He threatened her with a knife and suicide, as well as abusing her verbally and physically for five months. During that time, he borrowed $52,000 from her. In May 2016, after only seven months, they divorced. The judge ordered Nicholas to repay the money, but he never did. In 2017, he used OkCupid to connect with a food blogger in the UK. He flew there to meet her, and ended up moving into her home for five weeks. From the moment he walked in, he psychologically and emotionally wore her down. Within days, he was talking about getting married, and began doing calculations about how long it would take him to get his residency in the UK. He raped her and spent $3,600 of her savings. After reaching out to police for advice, she changed the locks on her door, hiding inside while he pounded on the door and threatened to sue her. That same year, the state of Utah received a grant to test backlogged rape kits. 
Some of them had been in storage for over a decade. This was supposedly because there wasn't enough money earlier. I'd say better late than never, but this seems too forgiving. One of these rape kits was taken after one of Nicholas's 2008 rapes. When it was finally tested, it matched a name in the database, Nicholas Rossi, and the U.S. prosecutors began building a case against him. By then, Nicholas was back in Rhode Island. He had failed to register as a sex offender there and had been placed on the state's most wanted list. Things were heating up for old pseudo-Saint Nick. The police were looking for him. Two years later, 2019, the FBI joined the hunt. They wanted to speak to him about wire fraud charges. Not only that, but the U.S. Marshals were contacting lawmakers who had once known him, asking about his location. It was then that Nicholas announced he had cancer and was dying. Several people who knew him thought he was lying, but a couple months later, that obituary appeared. A former friend of Nick's read the obituary and was a thousand percent sure he wrote it himself. It was so far over the top compared to the typical obituaries, and it fit Nick's style too well. Rhode Island law enforcement were slowly coming to the same conclusion. They couldn't find evidence of a death certificate for him, and the obituary mentioned a widow and two children who also couldn't be located. It seemed that by the time Nick's death was announced, he had already left the U.S. and landed in the U.K. His scams hadn't stopped, though. One month before he supposedly died, a man called Nicholas Brown was looking for work online. A Canadian TV host was looking for help marketing her vegan TV show. She connected with Nicholas Brown on Upwork. She spoke with him on the phone and thought he was smart and interesting. He said he was a Harvard-educated man and had worked on TV projects with Gordon Ramsay. She noted that his voice was strange. He had a pronounced stutter and he said he was Irish, but he spoke with an English accent. Regardless, his ratings were good, so she hired him. And this was the beginning of her financial nightmare. The lies began quickly. He fabricated a red-headed wife who was sickly, two family dogs, and a myriad of illnesses, even sending photos of his fake wife in the hospital at one point. This was all an effort to explain why he wasn't doing the work he promised her, based on credentials he never had. After four months, Nicholas hadn't done any work, but she had paid him $40,000. He talked a good game, but produced absolutely no results. She decided it was time for him to go. When she told him so, he became confrontational, threatening her with a list of things he would do if she didn't pay him what he felt she owed him. He threatened her, saying, You have no clue who you're dealing with. Settle, or your company and brand will be destroyed. End of story. He demanded an entire year's salary, and when denied, he set up a website bashing her and her brand. She would have to hire a firm to restore her online reputation. She shared a text with reporters. It read, I'll wait for you to wake up so we can talk about this before I reply to your nonsensical comment. I'm absolutely appalled by your comments, but I will give you the benefit of the doubt, and we will speak when it's morning there. I'm absolutely appalled. I would be happy to show you my work. I'm shocked, appalled, and aboard that you would insinuate that I've done nothing for you. We're on the brink of massive online sales with a correlating PR campaign on two continents, and here you are patronizing me and telling me I've done nothing. Text me when you're awake and we'll talk. 
Later, she received a letter claiming to be from Nick's lawyer, demanding $73,000 to fill out a year's salary. She tried to report him to the police in the UK, but was told they couldn't help her. She called the crime hotline in Montreal next, but police told her to speak to the UK authorities. Nicholas had told her he was Irish, so she tried calling the police in Dublin who told her to call Canada. It seemed like no one was willing or able to help her. In desperation, she hired a private detective in Dublin to search for Nicholas Brown, but he told her no such person existed and that she was dealing with a con man. She ended up losing nearly $200,000 because of Nicholas. This included his pay, her brand rebuilding, and the private investigator fees. And now we're finally caught up to the opening segment of this episode. In December of 2021, the man who checked himself in as Arthur Knight lay on a ventilator in a Glasgow hospital. He was seriously ill with COVID-19. His wife of two years, Miranda, sat with him. Since orchestrating his own death, Nick had been enjoying a new life in Scotland where he presented himself as an eccentric Panama hat-wearing university professor from Bristol. He introduced himself to neighbors as Arthur Knight. He pretended to be a friendly academic, one who enjoyed wearing three-piece suits with a pocket square, and he spoke with an upper-class British accent. He was a regular at local bars, where he'd be seen drinking expensive single-malt whiskey. I'm not sure exactly what flagged the hospital workers. Maybe it was something as simple as not being a Scottish resident and not having health care, but that's just a guess. Somehow, he was suspicious, and Interpol began working with hospital staff to identify the sick man based on his numerous tattoos, some of which looked like they had been partially removed. Arthur Knight did not exist. His real name was Nick, and he was arrested while he was still in the hospital. His arrest was based on an international warrant on behalf of investigators in Utah. He was released on bail on December 23rd from the courts. They let him stay in the hospital because he'd been so sick, but the next day he attempted to escape. He hired a taxi and tried to procure oxygen on his own. He had even tried to hire a private ambulance. He full-on denied that he was Nicholas Rossi, who was born as Nicholas Alaverdian. His wife, Miranda Knight, married Nicholas in early 2020. None of his friends or family attended the wedding, and he told her that he was from Dublin. In 2021, they had moved to Scotland. She stood by his side as he gave numerous interviews to the press. He'd be wearing his three-piece pinstripe suits, shiny leather shoes, and black round glasses as he sat in his wheelchair. He used an oxygen mask that helped hide his uneven English accent while vehemently denying allegations of rape, and he continued to deny his real identity. This is a vicious lie, he told reporters from Scotland. When they asked about his tattoos, he refused to roll his sleeves up above the elbow. In August 2022, a Scottish reporter who was interviewing Nicholas FaceTimed a former Rhode Island lawmaker who had known him since he was a little boy. The lawmaker said, Hi, Nick, how are you doing? But the man claiming to be Arthur Knight refused to speak to him. Nick's former stepfather, David Rossi, was shown footage from Scottish media and said, That's my son there. He's right there. That's my Nicky. Nick's court appearances and public persona became kind of crazy. 
he hired and fired his defense lawyers for calling him Nicholas when he said his name was Arthur. He refused to provide DNA samples to Scottish authorities, but he'd be readmitted into the hospital in July of 2022. Once in, he verbally abused staff there, at one point leaping out of bed and threateningly running towards a nurse and a consultant who were there to care for him. He was arrested and his fingerprints were forcefully taken. Those fingerprints matched Nicholas Rossi, taken years ago. He was denied bail this time. When the courts finally met to decide on his true identity, Arthur Knight argued that his extensive tattoos, which matched those of Nicholas Rossi, had appeared on his body while he lay in a coma. He said it was all part of a plan to frame him. His wife has faithfully stayed by his side, but she claims she doesn't know anything about him prior to when she had met him in 2019. Everything she knows about him is what he told her. Except this might be a lie, too. Recently, a recording has been released of a phone call made to arrange for a memorial for Nicholas when he was faking his death. The voice on the recording sounded suspiciously like his current wife. If it's her voice pretending to be his American widow, then she's known the truth about Nicholas faking his death for a long time. Now that Nicholas and his ridiculous claims have reached international news, I have a feeling that many more women will step forward to prosecute him, and I hope they do. So far, there are women from three countries who claim to have been raped, sexually assaulted, or conned by him. In March of this year, 2023, he will face extradition to the United States to face those rape charges in Utah. There will be many more charges placed for faking his death and being a wanted fugitive. I'll be sure to keep you up to date on social media. Most of the information from this episode came from an article in Daily Beast, from several stories in the Providence Journal, and from Wikipedia. Thank you, Twisted Travelers, for listening to today's episode. I have a couple of special thank yous for you. First to patrons and monetary supporters, including Vicky and Jordan, who have recently become Patreons. Please accept my deepest gratitude. A huge thank you to everyone who has taken the time to share the podcast on social media and for rating and reviewing it. With your kindness and help, new listeners are finding the podcast on a daily basis. On Valentine's Day, I found several reviews from Audible, which I was completely unaware of. They made my day. So thank you to Tanya M., Teresa W., and Katie for your five-star ratings and lovely reviews, and I apologize to you for not finding them earlier. Finally, thanks to Air Georgina 23 who says five stars, there are a few podcasts that I listen to at one time speed, and this is my favorite one to do so. Sandy has an incredibly calming voice and informative nature. I truly enjoy her form of storytelling. Thank you, Georgina. And from Hugh Jackman 22, great name by the way, five stars, short and sweet, but covers the story really well. Keep them coming. Thank you all so much, and as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.